Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. We are recording this session on, on March 14th of 2021, um, and we are a year into, into this crazy pandemic, I would say. We can't, I can't even say it's so strange to not record with you in person because this is how it is now, right? We're, we're, I know. we're used to this. I can't believe it. I can't believe it's a year. Um, and we are actually recording, I'm excited to say, at the end of a of um, independent minion conference that Hadar ran today over Zoom um, with representation of so many different minyanim who have all had the same year that we have had. Um, and we've actually already recorded several episodes with questions pertaining to how do we run a minion? How do we observe our mitzvot? Uh, on on Zoom when we can't gather together in person. We've we've talked about whether you can make a minion on, over Zoom. Um, we've talked about whether you can do shiva visits and visiting the sick uh, through Zoom, which have been so so relevant and so common. Um, and today we're going to look at a couple questions that that both continue this theme and also uh, here we are in in March of 2021 with vaccines getting slowly um, and, and quicker every day into the population um, and starting to ask some questions about what's, what's it gonna look like to run our Minyanim as we start to come back together in person. So the first, the first question we're gonna look at is exactly about this, about what is the world gonna look like as we go from uh, back into in-person learning? Are we gonna be able to let go of Zoom davening and what will it look like to have a half and half? So we'll have two questions today that actually both seem to hit on that. So here's question one. My minion will likely want to keep broadcasting on Zoom or live stream after the pandemic is over and we are back in person. As someone who doesn't use Zoom or manipulate technology on Shabbat, what does that mean for me? Should I decline to lead or read Torah or have an aliyah knowing that it is being broadcast? I have to say, I think this is gonna be a really common question for people. So I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, it's, you know, I really appreciate also kind of, the, there's, there's a pathos behind the question, uh, which comes from a good place, which is, you know, we, we've been thrown together um, in various ways by this uh, pandemic that has also split us apart, which is to say our normal modes of gathering or the normal ability to kind of, you know, everyone finds their own little space where they're comfortable. You've had to sort of like come together as a community and say, all right, I don't know, this is where the group of people are, are doing what I'm doing and actually, you know, cast your, cast your lot with them. Um, and so I think part of where the question is coming from is, okay, I, I was sort of together in this space with these people, and now we're not necessarily making exactly the same decisions about, in this case, technology on Shabbat, but these people are still in my community. Um, how am I gonna navigate that? So I, I just wanna sort of name, there's that piece beyond the technical piece, which we'll get into. I think what a question like this is really about is, um, how do we navigate situations where my own uh, personal or maybe like sub-communal sense of how we should answer one halacha question is being navigated in a wider circle of community that I'm a part of. 
And so this person I hear asking, well, I don't know, these, this is kind of the space where I want to and I'm needed to do something, at least in the near term, but it's not the same set of rules that perhaps I signed up for, right, when I joined this group. Yeah, I'm struck that there's also another change, which is that the, um, the community itself may not be the same community, right? Because once we've opened up our Minyanim to Zoom, we suddenly have members who could never join in person because they actually don't even live in the same city as us. Um, and so then to say, let's take this, this particular davening community off of Zoom may actually be entirely cutting that group of people off from the minion altogether. So, so it's both maybe that the, uh, the norms have changed, but also potentially even the group has changed. Great. So with that, I think, and sort of understanding all the complexities of navigating this um, and not clear, like, will this person have a short-term solution or is it going to be, uh, you know, really they're settling into a long-term pattern? Let's discuss a little more, a little more technically what's what's happening here. All right. So essentially the question is, as I would frame it, and I think where I would lead us uh, and the questioner to answer it, you have an activity which you've been doing in a certain space. And your intention is, in this case, to read Torah, to lead davening um, in the way that you did before, in the way that you continue to do, in a way that your intention is simply to come up and and do that leading the way you always did. But someone has stuck a microphone or a camera in front of you, <laughs> right? In that sense, you would sort of prefer that that technology not be there at all, but now it's sort of located there. And then the question is, how do I think about my stepping up to the podium, as it were, and being a player in this stage that's been set up? And am I responsible kind of for all the things that are going on? Frame of reference of the questioner is assumption. It is forbidden and problematic uh, to be broadcasting uh, both the video and audio pieces of the service. So given that frame of reference, there's two ways of thinking about it. One, I know that that's the way this community has decided to do it. And therefore, every time I step up to the BIMA, I'm kind of actively endorsing and participating in that system. And therefore, if I'm not okay with it, I really shouldn't be a part of that. That's one way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. The second way of thinking about it is, I'm just here to read Torah, but it seems like an inevitable consequence of my doing that is my voice is gonna be amplified, my face is gonna be projected. How do I potentially think about splitting my intention for what I want to do from the consequence of what's happening because of some other people's decisions? Yeah, I wonder also about, um, I guess two directions. One is, is it really so much better if I'm in the room and not leading or is that maybe just as bad? I guess it kind of depends where the camera is. Um, you know, we've never encountered the question of, can you see the room? Because most of us are all at home on Zoom. There's no room to see 
Um, even when people are broadcasting from their shul, there's not really a room to see, but, um, but now there might be. Um, and another question is, what if there are people who Dafka log into this broadcast because they want to see you, Lane? You know, it's like, uh, I think there are a lot of people around the country whose family members, there's, they're zooming in to watch family members lead because that's meaningful to them. Um, but that certainly feels different than there's an arbitrary camera here. Um, and the people there are there anyway, if, you know, if you if it's your mother that says, oh, I'm going to call in and watch the service. Service. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We had an episode way back about getting photographed on Shabbat, um, which raised some of these issues and what it means to be like, you know, complicit in a certain group activity as opposed to not wanting to disrupt it. Um, so I recommend listeners to kind of go back and find that episode for some of the deeper piece here. But here's what I would say. Like I laid out those two different models. I feel like actually both of them are right. And it's a little bit of a short-term, long-term question. <laughs> Let's take it short-term first. I think if you're thinking in a sort of short-term, ad hoc way of, well, I don't know, I'm nervous, my community may still do this. I'm not sure it's, I'm okay with it, but I'm looking for a way to still be a part of it, at, at least for now, and not feel like I'm violating Shabbat. So this, I think, is the classic uh, case in Hilchot Shabbat of Davar She'eno Mitkaveh. That is to say, you are doing an action that is perfectly innocuous, perfectly permissible, which is in this case, getting up and leading davening or reading Torah. But it has, as an inevitable consequence of what you're doing, as a corollary of what you're doing, a consequence that is problematic. In this case, from your perspective, the broadcasting, the live broadcasting of your voice mm -hmm. and of your image. And our general rule with a davar she'enomit kaven um, is sort of the following. It's, well, if you're not intending that consequence, it's basically okay to do the action. Unless that consequence is sort of inevitably wrapped up with doing the action. But unless, on that unless, that consequence is not particularly serious. Right? Mm -hmm. So the, the internal term of art on this is, a davar she'enomit kaven, an unintended consequence of a permitted action, is mutar. A psik velo yamut, a kind of inextricable intertwining of action and consequence, is forbidden. But a psik delo nichale, an isur de rabanan, which is to say, a consequence that you don't really care about happening, you don't get that much benefit from, and which ultimately is only a rabbinic violation, is the kind of thing you can ignore. So let's just spell it out here, right? What are we dealing with here? I think even for those, and it's my own take that this is correct, um, even for those who think that the live broadcasting of sound and video um, is not something that one should ideally be doing on Shabbat, I think it's pretty clear that with a feed that's on and not being, you know, turned on and off and manipulated, you know, in a fundamental way, um, the maximal prohibition is one of a rabbinic as opposed to a biblical level. That mm -hmm. is to say, you're dealing with something temporary that's around projecting images and sound in a temporary way. Truth be told, generating sound on Shabbat is something where Rav Moshe Yisraelis in the Shulchan Aruch says, you shouldn't do it, but in cases of loss, it's okay. Um, 
it all is on that sort of lesser level of concern. And therefore, I think the questioner in the short term has a very solid uh, grounding, and I follow this myself, that look, when you're showing up to a place where you don't totally call the shots, and it's not as if you're saying, hey, can we do a sound check? Because I'd like to make sure my voice will come out exactly how I like to hear it. But there's a microphone there. You know, there's something that's broadcasting there. You're justified in saying, from my perspective, this is a davar no mitkaven. This is not something I'm intending. And even to the extent that there will be some consequence of something that's problematic from my Shabbat frame of reference, it's of a minor consequence to me and I'm not getting benefit from it. That really goes to what you were suggesting of, you know, I think for integrity's sake, yes, I don't think you can say, and I'm going to give everyone the link of how they can listen to me, right, on Shabbat morning, unless you've already crossed the bridge of, actually, I've decided this is okay. Right, that really feels like, it's it's actually a great example of well, how could it possibly benefit me if I'm in the room? And the answer is, well, if my kids are home and I told them they could zoom in and watch me, then it's obviously a benefit. Um, you know, or, or if I shared the link with anybody, then, then that's a benefit to me. Personally. That's right. So I, I think that's, that's a short-term uh, guidance I would give to anyone. Now, long-term, I think it's more complicated. You know, I think at the end of the day, when you make a community your home on a generational scale, you raise your children there. You sort of normalize the integration of your life with the choices that are made there. On some level, you take them on in a de facto way, right? In other words, I think it's hard to say you're going to go to Shul for 30 years with a setup like that and treat it only as a davar no mitkaven. It's one thing, maybe you have a high holiday pulpit. It's one thing, it's a period of time in life. At a certain point, I think, you know, you're either living in unbearable cognitive dissonance or you've just dropped your guard on it and said, I'm actually not so sure I think this is forbidden. That's where I do think, though, what you were raising before also matters, which is, well, how prominent is it, right? How much do you have to confront it? Um, There are different kinds of broadcasting that different places do, right? Some places have a virtually hidden microphone where someone might be given a Zoom link that they know about where they're one way receiving a signal, but the rabbi's never sort of talking to the audience per se, and you really actually are not not in your field of vision at all. And then there's other setups where, no, there's really actually some effort to kind of integrate in a live way some sense of an extended audience. That becomes harder to say you have no consciousness of that going on. Right. I'm thinking now about um, shuls where people are broadcasting from the sanctuary and they have screens set up so that they can see the participants on Zoom. It's like if those screens remain, then you're really also in a Zoom shul. That may feel different. Um, although I feel your your reference to, well, if this is your shul, right? This is where you were raised or this is where you are raising someone. The option of I should avoid taking an aliyah, that's not really tenable either. That's not a way to live your life, um, to be a member of a community long-term. And so to that extent, it feels like what's at stake in the question is much bigger than should I lane? It's actually, do I need to find a new home community um, which may be impossible for some people, but for others, it's it's maybe not impossible, but it's a big ask. 
Correct. No, I think that's absolutely right. And this is the other dimension, which I think splits quite dramatically across time and space. Um, for those of us who live in densely populated Jewish communities, by which I mean not only numbers densely populated, but you know, institutionally densely populated, it's easy to say, well, I'm going to leave that shul and go to this shul, or I'm going to start a break-off minion. And you know, God knows there's plenty of people at this conference, right? That's exactly what their mode was at a certain point. They were like, I'm not satisfied with what the options are, and I feel there's enough sort of bandwidth uh, in terms of the community to start something new. Um, and in those cases, I think people have the luxury and, and maybe some degree of religious responsibility not to kind of live in a permanent space of, I'm in this place, I think what's going on is wrong, I'm not okay with it. That's a very different dynamic than when you're in a community, there's a show, right? Like, that's it. And I think one of the fascinating you things- You your house based on the show. And then it changed, right? Exactly. Um, and for all kinds of reasons, economic, emotional, any number of reasons, it's not viable, right, for you to move. And I think this is beyond, this would be a sort of interesting meta response radio episode. It's fascinating when you go back through the response literature um, and you see all kinds of cases where people were, you know, stuck, for lack of a better term, in communities that did not perfectly match their specs, you know, of what they would have designed if they were in charge. And in that sense, sometimes, like my distinction between the short term and the long term can collapse because I don't have another option. And on some level, it's possible, and I think therefore important for people sometimes to have language of, Here's how I navigate, like a long-term situation where I'm, I'm not willing to actually completely fold myself into being at peace with all the decisions this community has made, but it's also my community, right? And that's where some of that language of davar in the context of Shabbat, I think has not only a kind of powerful technical valence, but it's sometimes in its own way a coping strategy for people to be able to live in a world that they don't fully control, but what you do control is still your own intentions and the ability to say, look, I know what I want this moment to be, and I'm gonna to try to live that out as best I can. I wanna echo back actually, um, I was saying at the beginning of the podcast that we're recording as part of a, a day, as part of a minion conference. And one of the topics that came up in our, in our open space for people to raise topics was, how do we handle the situation when the founders of the Minion had one vision of for what this community should be? And the community has actually moved in a direction such that that founding vision is now at odds. Um, you know, what do you do then? I feel like there's some of that question actually. And, and that question is, you know, this was a Minion conference. It's, it's obviously a broad and probably age old question um, about what it means to be in, in, in any kind of Minion or, or Shul community. Um, there's something in this question of that, which is, you know, I was, I already linked myself to a certain community and then it moved, you know, the, then the community changed the rules. Um, and certainly this pandemic uh, allowed and pushed a lot of changes that we wouldn't have seen otherwise, or that usually take much longer. I don't know, I just, I, I'm not even sure that we, we need to address it. I just think that's an interesting, uh, there's a connection between this very technical question and that much bigger meta question. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a poignant moment where we're experiencing that somewhat evergreen question. 
I'm going to move us directly into our next set of questions, which I think are also extremely related to the first, and you'll see how they go together. Um, I'm going to group these two questions together. I'm going to ask them all at once, although I expect that we may need to tackle them one at a time. They may take us in different directions. Okay, sounds good. The reason I'm grouping them is because both questions center around um, an essential question of how do I respond to Kaddish in this situation? I usually like to say, oh, we have so many questions that start with, can I do X on Shabbat? The category here is, can I respond to Kaddish if? Um, and I'll give you the two different scenarios and then we'll see if they have anything in common. Okay, scenario one is for the outdoor minion. I myself have been to many, many outdoor minyanim um, and encountered this exact problem. So I'm very curious to hear. I was, ju I was just at an outdoor minion an hour ago, whatever there you it was. Go. There you go. So it's a very relevant question we have here. Um, it says, because of outdoor noises and wind, it is sometimes hard to hear the person saying Kaddish. Should I still answer a Kaddish even if I didn't hear most or part of the recitation? Minion I've been going to is right next to a highway. So this question comes up a lot. Okay, so that's question one. The outdoor minion, it's noisy. I may not have heard the Kaddish. Should I still respond? Um, or I haven't heard all of it. Second situation is going to be back to our hybrid Zoom situation. And I think for this question, we have to assume this is not Shabbat. That's not the crux of the issue here. So assume this is like a weekday shahrit. I think from the way the question is written that this person is not considering Zoom minyanim as a minion. So they say, if I'm at home on mute and I'm watching a Zoom of a live minion that has 10 live people in person, should I say amen and respond to Kaddish in my living room? I'll say, you know, it's very hard to hear a Kaddish and not respond, actually. Um, I have not been personally joining Zoom Minyanim, but I have joined many because I've been trying to join a Shiva and I wind up in the, right. in the Zoom room at a Zoom Minion. Um, and it's very hard, you know, you just instinctively respond on Zoom. Um, so the question here is, if there's actually a live Minion happening, do I respond to Kaddish? So here are our two, do I respond to Kaddish if questions? Yeah, great. Those are, I love, yeah, I love the new genre. <laughs> do I respond to Kaddish how, if? How many questions can we generate? Exactly. So uh, let's start with the second one, actually, because I feel like I have a pretty straightforward answer. Right? My basic answer is yes, <laughs> but I want us to just a little bit unpack it. So let's work with the frame of reference, which is overall my operating frame of reference, which is that constituting a minion requires physical proximity in one place. And then the question is, can you, once that has been constituted, use the sort of power of that right convened in person minion to transcend the distances of of the airwaves and the broadcast it, it really comes down um, and i think we may have discussed this also in another episode it really comes down to these two kind of conflicting poles in the discourse in the gemara in masachet psachim uh, where basically you have one statement by rav which essentially says when constituting a minion for tefillah, for prayer, uh, you've got to be in one room, in one house, just like the Korban Pesach, like it has to be eaten in one house. Similarly, that's a kind of communal convening to do something, you know, as a Jewish community and microcosm. So too with tefillah. 
with prayer, it's got to be in one place. That's all Rav says. And then Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi comes along and says, even a chomat uh, barzel, even an iron wall, cannot separate between Jews and their heavenly parent. And then there's a sort of interesting navigation of, are those statements just completely polar opposites in conflict? Or is one somehow meant to be nested under the other? There is a kind of extreme reading of those two statements as having like a fundamental war over the question of basically, is God to be found anywhere that like 10 Jews can somehow link thoughts <laughs> um, and, you know, think that they're doing something together? And then geography can't have anything to do with it. Whereas the other is saying it's all about being in the same space. There is a way to read it that way. So you don't read the iron wall as being, yes, we are actually standing on two sides of an iron wall. You think it's a, it's a metaphorical, even if we really are not in the same room. Well, I think it would even be the iron wall, literally. But the reason I say linked mentally is that there has to be some way that the 10 people know and think they're doing something together, yeah. right? In other words, to the extent that that's playing into the laws of Minyan at all. So right, the simplest way would be they're not in the same structure, but they can hear each other, right? Something mm -hmm. like that. So there is a sort of hard line way of reading Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi as endorsing Zoom Minyanim, right? And any argument that would go in that direction would flow through him in one way or the other. But the dominant reading and subsequent halacha, really launched by the Tosafot there, by the Re, Rabbi Yitzchak of Dampierre, is to assume that Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi is kind of nested underneath Rav, which is to say, Rav says, in order to constitute a minion, you have to share physical space. But once that minion has been constituted, there is no limit in terms of who can hear, answer, answer to Kaddish, answer to Barhu. And that becomes an uncontroversial ruling, which is to say, let's say you need 10 people in the, in the synagogue building, in the sanctuary to form the minion, but then a bunch of people walking outside who hear, you know, Ba'agalau bizman karivim ruamein, can answer, Yeheshmei Rabbah. So I would say it's a straight up extension from that to Zoom. This has been my own practice through the pandemic. I have not been a part of uh, kind of constituting Minyanim over Zoom, but on the occasions where I have called into a physical Minyan, I absolutely answer all the Amens, the Kaddishes, et cetera. And going to the questioner's fact pattern, yeah, even if you're on mute, Right, the idea is that you are receiving the sort of infinite, unstoppable force of, uh, you know, of divine presence that's been collected in that space on your receiving end, and you can then respond. That's not the same necessarily as saying a Kaddish or leading something over an electronic medium for a group. But if something's going on in that group and you want to respond to answer to Kedusha, Kaddish, that's the basis for doing it. And that's certainly been my practice during this time. Um, I love that we're doing this question actually immediately after the previous one, because although the previous person had the Shabbat factor, if you take out the Shabbat factor, um, 
you know, it was like, we're, we're going to look at this question from both directions. We started in the room and now we are the person on the other side of the screen. Um, and this answer that you just gave is such a beautiful articulation of what does it even mean to be a person on the other side of a screen watching? And the answer is, it means you benefit and are a part of, in some way, the radiating energy of this minyan. It's really nice to sort of see it and think about it in both directions. You know, what, what is that laner offering to the person or the person taking the aliyah offering actually to the person on Zoom? It's, it's quite a gift. That's right. And, you know, I would just say to think about it sort of from a minion institutional perspective, it's something we've grappled with at Hadar this year. So, you know, we had two basic approaches that, that guided us at Hadar in terms of limitations on Zoom. One, we weren't doing minyanim constituted over Zoom, and we weren't using any kind of streaming on Shabbat or Yom Tov. But then what it sort of refocused us on was, you know, Tishabav. Purim, these other sort of non-Milacha restricted days where we actually then put together what I thought were, you know, were very powerful programs and convenings where we would have like, you know, a mincha that was gathering somewhere and a sense of, well, actually what's special about this event for us, because it's not on Shabbat, is we're taking advantage of the idea of it's still critical for people to gather but then how could we amplify that beyond those who were able to gather? And I think it is interesting to think about how that might be integrated in a more long-term way. I mean, I've even thought like when Yeshiva Tadar is able to sort of come back and have daily learning together, I was like, I don't know, maybe we should be broadcasting Mincha every day, you know, to give people a sense of, I'm not able to be there in person, but this is my Beit Midrash, or this is my prayer space. I'm feeling like I'm able to, you know, tie into it. There's something powerful about actually not going all or nothing on some of these questions of medium and broadcasting. I think also of really naming the power of the Amin. You know, when, when, it, when you're all in the same room and it's all so simple, you can really put all your focus on the person saying Kaddish um, and forget actually the power of saying Amen. You know, again, I keep coming back to the Shiva minion. I feel like the Shiva minion is the example where we all know acutely the power of being able to show up and say Amen. That is when we, you know, we want to sort of be counted and have the opportunity to do that. I think your question is right that now that we understand the power that that can offer to people who are homebound for any number of reasons or distant from that minion for any number of reasons, that will be a really important thing to remember and a difficult thing to let go of simultaneously. Yeah. And there's worse things of, you know, if more people tune in for a weekday than for Shabbat, there's, there's worse things than correcting that balance. It's been a nice focus at Hadar, right, for us, where we've said, oh, forget Yom Kippur. The key is the day before. Arab Yom Kippur, <laughs> that's... That's what it's all about. That's right. That's right. I think there's something awesome about that. I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that you brought up the Amen piece, because I think that's a great way to segue into the other question you asked, which is really sort of thinking about how do we manage responses, right? And sort of like when I can't hear things and I'm sort of vaguely in sync with something. And that's actually, I think, a fascinating and a little more complex question. I, I want to break it down. It, into, it occurs to yeah. me for the first time, actually, that these are also inverse questions. The first one is, can I say amen when you can't hear me? And the second is, can I say amen when I didn't hear you? Um, that's right. Exactly opposite. That's right. Great. So that's a great way, I think, to jump into this. Let me break it down into two parts. You know, one part is, 
are there nine people who are hearing it, right? Mm -hmm. That is to say, do I even have the group uh, of nine plus the leader who are totally on the same page in terms of what's going on? I, I would start there and say, if there are not nine people who are actually hearing the leader, that is a problem. <laughs> the Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher ben Yechiel, uh, in the 13th century, one of his responsa is on this point. He's not actually dealing with windy outdoor minyanim. He's dealing with a different problem, which is everyone's sort of like humming along or singing their own thing <laughs> while the leader is leading parts of the davening. And he says, you know, if you don't have nine people actually paying attention to the repetition of the Amida and answering Amen, it's actually really, he won't quite say it, but he's pretty much on the line of saying that almost feels to me like a blessing made in vain because the whole thing we're doing, right? The Takana, as it were, the requirement of 10 is presumably that you're not just getting up and doing something on your own. So I do think sort of level one of answering this question is, if you're davening in an environment where literally not even nine other people can hear the leader, either you've got to reconfigure your seating or it may actually not be viable to daven there. It sounds like his point is really to underscore and emphasize the group or the, the unity of we are not, a minion is not 10 people who came to daven the same tefillah at the same place at the same time. It's actually, we are doing this together. We have to mark these moments together. But that in manifest practice, maybe what you're saying is, if I couldn't hear and I'm sitting directly next to the person, <laughs> then that's probably, I shouldn't respond. But if I'm, you know, 30 people away and we're all social distance, then, then maybe the closer 10 heard. Exactly. That's where I think we need to move on part two. In other words, let's assume on part one, any viable davening space has to be set up such that nine people can hear the leader. Okay? It makes me think uh, Joey Weisenberg, who is our, our expert on creating singing communities, has built a career on telling us sit as close together as you possibly can, where you are letting all the energy just dissipate. And now this year, it's like we've had to do exactly, exactly the opposite. That's right. It's so hard. And, and look, it requires some, you know, some creativity. I mean, I think in some of the outdoor minion spaces I've been, what you sometimes have to think about is, even if you want the Daviner sort of, you know, free and clear such that, you know, their aerosols are, you know, going, going straight into, into an empty space. There are ways, instead of everyone being behind the leader, they can be on the wings, off to the sides, they're still catching some of the sound. So there is some basic responsibility, I would say. You got to set up the space so nine people can hear. I would say one more thing that that might do for us practically in, um, in the outdoor minyanim that we don't think about indoor is people saying Kaddish have to actually maybe sit more central. They shouldn't sit all the way to the side where in a standard indoor minion where we're not worrying about that, we may let those people really be on the sidelines. This would actually push us to, to center them. Right, you'd have to think about that. That's right. Now, assuming that's been met, okay, then you get to the more interesting and complex question of, okay, you got your nine people who are hearing everything. You prefer to sit in the back for whatever reason, or you have to because of social distancing. And you're hearing kind of at the level of, oh, they're saying Yeheshme Rabbah now. 
I should join in, but not at the level of having heard Ba'agalau Vizman Kari Ve'imruameh. Yeah, you just heard the response, right? Yeah, you can basically sort of follow, you can tag along, but you're essentially doing it a step removed, right? You're tagging along with the people answering, as opposed to answering the person leading. Mm -hmm. So this is actually a, a discussion that comes up in the Gemara. I mean, one of my favorite things about, you know, this show, Halacha more broadly, is just, uh, we've talked about this so many times, right? There's almost nothing that doesn't have a precedent. You just have to look somewhere else. You know, it's, it's not going to be about COVID, but it's going to be about something else. So here's the relevant text. There's a text that appears in the Tosefta and then in the Talmud Bavli, which forbids an amen yatoma, literally an orphaned amen. All right. And I mean, that is somehow detached from mm -hmm. something else. It's not directly defined in that text. And you have two or three competing definitions of it. The Talmud Yerushalmi basically says someone's sitting down to make a bracha. It almost sounds like, you know, they're doing this to fulfill some obligation and you're there wanting to like fulfill your obligation with them. But you answer, velo yada lemahu ana but you don't know what you're answering to. So that almost sounds like it might be conceptual, like someone mechanically answering amen without actually understanding what's going on. Though it could also be read as, you know, a little more of a, you haven't been following, like, you, you know, they're saying kiddish, you know, you want to, you know, fulfill your obligation with kiddish, but you didn't sort of actually pay attention throughout, right? That's, that's one reading of an Amin Yatoma. It does I, sound like the Amin woke you up. You're like, oh yeah, Amin. Yeah, exactly. I, was reading something, my book. I didn't realize you got to the cottage. Something like that. Rashi gives what might be a different or maybe just more extreme version of that. He says, an Amin Yatoma is when you didn't hear the bracha at all. Hmm. You just heard when they started answering Amen. That's pretty close to our case, right? That we're talking right. about. There's a third uh, explanation, which says you waited too long. In other words, it's like someone said, you know, twiddle your thumbs, wait. Amen, right? Which would not be relevant, right? So it's, it's Rashi's explanation and potentially the Yerushalmi that's relevant for thinking about people who are aware there's like a time to answer amen, but they have not been locked in to the bracha. And that seems to say you can't do that, right? So that would seem to be the answer. If we just were ruling based on that, we would say, uh, yeah, the nine people or whoever else can hear at that windy parking lot minion, they answer amen, the other people don't. But Here's the crazy precedent. So you have this great story. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda tells it in the Tosefta and Sukkah, and it appears also in the Talmud Bavli and Sukkah. He's saying, if you never saw the two-story synagogue in Alexandria in Egypt, you have never seen what an incredible shul looks like. And he goes on, he's like, it was this incredible basilica and it had these different colonnades and everything was unbelievable. There were twice as many people in there who came out of Egypt, all right? That seems pretty clearly hyperbolic, but mm -hmm. enormous, right? Enormous capacity. And then he says the following, the Chazan used to go up to the bima in the middle and he would hold flags in his hand. 
the chazan haknesset here is not the not the chazan, not the like the cantor, okay? But the person who's basically responsible for conducting the service. They're more like the gabai, exactly. Okay, the gabai. This is a a, a minion conference for a hundred percent here. So the gabai goes up with flags. Rabbi Yehuda says at this incredible shul. When someone would get up, it says likrot to read. What happens? Basically, someone reads. When they get to the end of the bracha, this person waves the flag, and then everyone answers amen. So what's the direct implication? The implication of this text is that they can't hear. The people in this synagogue don't actually hear the brachot being made, and they answer amen based on the flags being waved. So the question that then, as you can imagine, Talmudic commentators, and it's the Tosvot here who jump in on, want to ask is, how does that sit with the amen yetomah text? Meaning, isn't what the people in Alexandria were doing exactly the case of at least how Rashi defines an Amen Yatoma, which is you didn't hear it, and then you heard people answering Amen, and you joined it. And the implication seems to be, since the story of the protocol of the Jews of Alexandria in their synagogue is brought without comment or objection in the Talmud, it must be normative. Hmm. Right. And so therefore, if what they did was normative, it can then sort of go up against this other text. Now, there's a lot of assumptions there. Now, who says it's normative? Or who says everyone agreed with the Amenia Tomar concern? By the time this is being transmitted in Babylonia, you know, the Jewish community of Alexandria has gone into decline centuries earlier. So it's not even like a live practice at that point. How do we understand it? There are a couple pathways here. Uh, Rav Cohen Tzedek Gaon, who's quoted in the Tosafot and the Aruch, one of the early Gaonic figures, he seems, seems to be the plain sense of his opinion is that he just rejects the precedent of Alexandria. And he says, you may never answer Amen if you did not hear the blessing. Later commentators, Rav Yosef Karo, try to square him with the Alexandria story, but it seems the simplest reading is he didn't assume that was normative, and he follows the Amenia Toma reading. That's sort of on one end, on one extreme. The Tosafot offer their own resolution, which is way on the other extreme, which is the only thing that's forbidden is to answer Amen when you have no idea what's going on. In other words, you walk into a synagogue, you, have, you don't know what page they're on, you hear Amen, you start answering Amen. But in Alexandria, they just couldn't hear it, but they knew where they were at, right? Like in the Amida, they're like, okay, there's 19 blessings. They did number one, I answer Amen. And as long as you are sort of like, mentally keeping pace, or think of this, I think a lot of us have been in this situation in the Minyanim, you can't, in the outdoors, right? Like you can't really hear what's going on, but if you have your Sidur, you pick up like a fragment here and there, so you know where they are. Right. According to the you know Tosafot, that's enough. It's like, you, you know, it's the third Aliyah, you know, it's the, it's the fifth Aliyah, you're, you're following along. 
I think also the image of you just joined the room and you have no idea where we are on, on Zoom feels. Yeah, that, that exact thing can happen. I just joined the room and everybody said, I mean, and I have no idea what was happening before. Yeah. Actually no idea. That's right. So th that's sort of the most extreme. This, this middle position emerges, which is interesting, um, based a little bit on that Yerushalmi, where it sounds like someone's sitting down in the goal of you know fulfilling obligations, which is basically, if it's the kind of bracha that you are intending to kind of have an obligation fulfilled through, meaning you're there to hear someone make Kiddush for you, basically, unless you hear the whole thing, you have no business answering Amen, mm -hmm. because then you weren't actually yeah. hearing the words of Kiddush, which is why you were there in the first place. But if it's the kind of bracha where like, let's say you daven the Amida already, and then you're just sort of there like hanging out while the allowed Amida is done and you want to answer, then it's okay to follow the Tosafot standard um, of as long as you know what's, you know what's happening, what's going on. Rav Yosef Karo emerges from that and says the following. If you are there to fulfill your obligation, you've got to listen and hear the entire text of the bracha in order to answer amen. Answering amen in the context of trying to fulfill your obligation without having heard the bracha is just meaningless. Don't do that. If it's not that situation, you're not trying to fulfill your obligation, you can answer amen at will. That is to say, there are no restrictions whatsoever. You don't have to have any clue what's going on. By contrast, Rav Moshe Iserlis says, you have to always have an idea of what the leader is up to. That is to say, that resolution of the Tosafot, as long as you know I'm on you know, the third Aliyah, I'm on Bracha 4 of 19, then you don't have to have heard the words but you do have to have some sense of what's going on, which is stricter than where uh, Rav Yosef Karo comes out in the Shulchan Aruch. I would just say, I think what's interesting to combine it with the first part of this answer of like making sure there's nine, you know, who are fully locked in, it creates this sort of also interesting two-tier level of presence at a minion like that, you know, and you can imagine people actually toggling back and forth. Like there's sort of some times where, I'm responsible to like fully anchor this and make sure it's really happening. And then there's also sort of this space, which is represented by the people in this huge synagogue in Alexandria with the flags, where there's also a value to having people who are like attached to that. They're not actually riveted on every single word, but they're joining in on the communal experience and they sort of know, you know, what's happening. Yeah, thanks. I think these questions, all three together, have been really powerful at opening up for us what maybe even a year ago we would have said, what is a minion? Oh, it's 10 people. <laughs> and now, a year later, we're able to think much more expansively about who is in the room and who is not in the room, um, and the fluidity between those and how our community both is centralized in the need for 10 people to come together in person. And also what we do in that room can reach so far beyond.
Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at halacha at hadar.org. H-A-L-A-K-H-A-H at hadar.org. Sponsor Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute. Thanks to Bachi Weiler and Morty Laviton for producing this Zoom live podcast and to Noah Gendler for editing this episode.